Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's episode is one that I've gotten request after request after request for. This is the case of Ellen Greenberg. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Twenty-seven-year-old Ellen Greenberg was known for her megawatt smile and her bubbly personality. No one was a stranger to her. Her personality was positive and infectious, and everyone who knew her said the same thing. Basically, she was the best. She was a teacher at an elementary school in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and loved her job. So much so that she had actually gone back to school to do it. It wasn't her initial career choice, but in time, she realized it was her calling and went back and got a second degree to make it happen. With a personality as big as Ellen's, it's no surprise that she had a ton of friends. Lifelong friends, college friends, work friends, and friends that she just met along the way. And they were all counting down the days until her upcoming wedding. In 2010, after three years of dating, her boyfriend Sam popped the question and Ellen was ecstatic. By August, she was trying on wedding dresses and planning out all the details for the wedding that she had been dreaming about since she was a little girl. This was a romantic and exciting time in her life, but in 2010, something changed. According to the Inquirer, who did an incredible piece on this case, including forensic reports, which I'll link in Ellen's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, the once positive, bubbly, and happy-go-lucky Ellen started to step back. She didn't seem as cheerful. She wasn't as talkative. She seemed suddenly stressed and more so consumed with anxiety. Ellen had always been extremely confident. She was the kind of girl who knew who she was, what she wanted, and she went after it. I mean, the girl went to college twice. But her father tells the Daily Mail that in late 2010, once this behavioral change set in, and it set in fast, Ellen seemed to stop having the confidence to even make her own decisions. Her father told the Daily Mail that when he would try to make suggestions or plans with his daughter, she'd started deferring all the decision-making to her fiancé, Sam, saying, I'll have to check with Sam, I'll have to see what Sam says. Now, this change didn't go unnoticed at all. Frankly, it was obvious if we're going to describe it. And Ellen's parents, friends, and co-workers all mentioned something to her about it. They adored her and were genuinely concerned about what could be going on that would cause such a drastic change in her personality. When asked, she would pause for a second and then tell them that work was stressing her out with the occasional mention of wedding stress here and there. And anyone who's ever planned a wedding can attest to it being a real bitch to put together, so I can see that. But this just seemed deeper, like something bigger was going on, even though no one could really explain why. At one point, Ellen actually called her parents and asked them if she could move back home with them in Harrisburg. Ellen had a great job and shared a pretty nice apartment with her fiancé, so moving two hours away to move back in with her parents would have been a massive life-changing decision, and it had her parents really worried. I mean, this would mean leaving her job and living apart from the man she still planned to marry and was in the throes of planning a wedding with. 
Naturally, her parents asked if there was something going on at home, if her relationship was on the rocks or if something had happened, but she assured them that everything was fine, she just wanted to go home. They were supportive of whatever decision she wanted to make, but they begged Ellen to see a psychiatrist, and she did. According to the Daily Mail, she went three times in January of 2011, on the 12th, the 17th, and again on the 19th. Ellen told the psychiatrist about work stressing her out. The psychiatrist asked if there was any kind of abuse going on at home, and she was pretty adamant that there wasn't. And in the end, the psychiatrist decided that Ellen was suffering from anxiety and started her off on Zoloft and a low dose of Xanax. When that didn't work, the psychiatrist switched her over to Klonopin and Ambien. Now, this seems like a really short period of time to start an anxiety medication, decide it's not working, and switch to another, but I'm not a doctor. However, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, sleep, energy, and appetite may improve within one to two weeks when starting Zoloft, but it takes around six to eight weeks to see depressed mood or lack of interest improve. Regardless, with the new medications, Ellen seemed to get better. Within the first few days, she seemed to notice a difference. She decided not to move home, stayed in Philadelphia, continued her job at the elementary school, and the wedding planning didn't skip a beat. And neither did the birthday planning, because according to the Always Time for True Crime podcast, Ellen had even managed to organize a dinner party for Sam's birthday, which was coming up on the 28th. In mid-January, Ellen and Sam Save the Dates came in, and she couldn't have been more excited to send them out. By the 22nd, she was getting phone calls from friends and family RSVPing to their August wedding just eight months away. January 26, 2011 started like any other day. Well, kind of. I mean, there was a nor'easter coming, but this was winter in Philly. She called her mom that morning and everything seemed fine. She went to school, but not for long. With the Nor'easter on the way, the county shut the schools down early, and according to a segment on Dr. Oz, she made sure all of her students had a ride home before she headed out herself, stopping for gas on the way back to her and Sam's place. When she got back to her sixth-floor apartment, Sam was already there. They spent some time together doing, well, no one really knows what, but we'll get to that later. But around 4.45 p.m., Sam decides he's going to head to the gym. I thought this was weird considering they were about to get hit with snowmageddon, but the gym was actually inside of their apartment complex. Most reports say he was at the gym for about 30 minutes or so, but based on Ellen's phone records, it looks like it was probably around 45 minutes. After he finishes at the gym, he gets back to their apartment, but the door is locked. He tries banging on it, yelling to get Ellen's attention, but she never comes. According to an investigative report obtained by the Inquirer, he then tried calling, texting, and even emailing Ellen to try and get her to open the door. Here are the texts. Hello? Open the door. What are you doing? I'm getting pissed. Hello? You better have an excuse. What the fuck? Ugh. You have no idea. All of Sam's calls and texts happened between 5.30 p.m. and 5.54 p.m., so it looks like he was probably at the door for around 24 minutes. When all of Sam's efforts to get Ellen to open the door failed, he went down to the security guard at the front desk and told him the whole story, that he'd gone to the gym only to come back to find himself locked out of his apartment. He asked the security guard to help him break the lock, but the guard told him that was against policy. Frustrated, Sam goes back upstairs and says he kicks the door in himself, only to find Ellen, bloody and unconscious, on the floor of their kitchen with her head and shoulders propped up against the cabinets. At 6.33 p.m., Sam called 911. 
Sam's last call to Ellen was at 5.52 p.m. His last text to her was at 5.54 p.m. There's a 29-minute gap between his last attempt to contact her and when he called 911. Maybe this is where he called his mother and his uncle, who is a prominent attorney in the area, because according to the Daily Mail, he made those two calls before calling 911. Ellen's mom tells the Daily Mail that Sam's mom and uncle were on the way to the scene almost before emergency services were. The 911 call has never been released, but Ellen's parents have been able to listen to it and gave the details to the Daily Mail. She tells the outlet that she knows there's no handbook on how to handle situations like this, but says that she was shocked at how calm Sam was. I mean, he was saying, oh my God, oh my God, there's blood, but notes that his demeanor was calm and that she thought it was strange that he told the dispatcher at how he'd been at the gym before finding her. The 911 operator tells Sam to start doing CPR, but according to Ellen's mother, his response to that was, do I have to? We can assume he does because there's no reports that say otherwise, but three minutes into the CPR, he suddenly realizes there is a giant kitchen knife sticking out of Ellen's chest. He tells the operator she must have fallen on it. What? Three minutes of CPR continuously pushing down on her chest, and he is just now realizing there is a huge knife sticking out of it. The dispatcher tells him to stop the CPR immediately, and within four minutes, the police are there and Ellen is pronounced dead. Law enforcement starts processing the scene and looks for any signs of an intruder, but there are none. Not even a damaged door frame, which you'd expect to see if Sam had kicked the door in. But no, he tells the police that the door wasn't deadbolted. The bar latch at the top of the door was what was keeping him out. They inspect the door and both sides of the bar latching mechanism are still installed, one half on the door and one half still attached to the door frame, with just one single screw missing. There was only one other way out of the apartment, which would have been through the balcony, but at this point it was snowing and the snow on the patio was untouched. There were no footprints and frankly it was the sixth floor balcony, so even if there was an intruder and the intruder did use that back door, where would they go? They look around the rest of the apartment and everything looks overtly normal. The report obtained by the Enquirer actually describes it as tidy and even mentions that money, keys, and laptops were still in the house, so it doesn't look like this was a robbery. Outside of there being blood in the kitchen where Ellen was found, they don't find blood anywhere else in the apartment. And frankly, the blood in the kitchen is pretty minimal considering the fact that she had a knife sticking out of her chest. Police look at her arms and hands and don't notice any evidence of defensive wounds, and her right hand was a white towel that had little to no blood on it, and her glasses were on the floor near her hand. On the counter were some sliced oranges and blueberries and a cute little floral strainer and two clean knives in the sink. Police theorize she might have been preparing a fruit salad when whatever happened to her happened. Law enforcement starts talking to the neighbors to see if they heard anything, and surprisingly enough, they said they didn't. They said the only thing they heard was Sam trying to get her to open the door, which seems insane. If someone is getting stabbed, what are the chances they're not going to scream?
That being said, I looked up the reviews for this apartment complex and focused on the negative. I know that sounds shitty, but I was looking for anyone to complain about the noise or walls being paper thin, but I couldn't find a single mention of noise being a factor in these negative reviews. It's not science, but it's worth consideration. They also talked to that security guard whom the investigative report says Sam claims was with him when he broke the door in. However, the security guard adamantly denies that he ever left his post. In fact, according to the Daily Mail, the security guard even mentioned he thought it was odd that Sam kept telling him that he'd been at the gym because he wasn't wearing sneakers, he was wearing boots. Following these interviews with the neighbors and the security guard, Sam's taken down to the police station to be questioned and immediately requested an attorney. I know this looks suspicious in this circumstance, and it might be, but his uncle is an attorney, and we heard earlier that he called said uncle before calling 911. So it's no surprise that he may have been instructed not to say anything without an attorney present, either that day or at some point in his life. According to a segment on Dr. Oz, Ellen's entire scene was processed within an hour. One single hour. And because of the locked latch and no signs of an intruder, the police come to the conclusion that Ellen had committed suicide. But that's where the medical examiner comes in and where this case becomes one of the most shocking and unbelievable cases I have ever researched. During Ellen's autopsy, the medical examiner found that she hadn't just been stabbed once. Ellen had been stabbed 20 times. 10 of these stab wounds were to the back of her neck. Eight were to her chest. One was to her abdomen, and she also had a two and a half inch gash across the back of her scalp. Two of Ellen's neck wounds were 2.7 and 3.1 inches deep. One of her chest wounds was 3.9 inches deep, and one of the stab wounds to her abdomen was 2.5 inches deep. The rest of her stab wounds were very shallow. As a result of these stab wounds, Ellen had injuries to her aortic arch, the artery that feeds blood from your heart to the rest of your body, and also had injuries to the upper left lobe of her lung, her liver, and to her spinal cord. On top of the stab wounds, Ellen had 11 bruises. They were to her upper right arm, her right forearm, her right lower abdomen, right knee, and right thigh. The bruises to her thigh were round and in a vertical row, almost like she'd been hit with an object. But all of them were in different stages of the healing process, which means she had gotten them over a period of time before she died. The only drugs found in her system were clonopin and Ambien, both things we know she was prescribed. Her stomach was empty, and the science behind the emptying of the stomach can get a little complicated. Generally, the stomach takes four to five hours to completely empty. If she had eaten breakfast or lunch, it's possible that her stomach would have been empty between 4.45 when Sam left and 6.33 when he called 911. We know there was fruit on the counter that it looks like Ellen had been cutting up. If she had eaten a low-density food, like the blueberries in the strainer, that could have completely digested on an empty stomach within 10 to 15 minutes. All of this would be important if we knew Sam's account of the hours prior to her death, but we don't. 
If he had said something like, we'd just eaten lunch, we'd be able to say that's not true, but there's just no statement to make comparisons to. The medical examiner considered all of his findings, the multiple stab wounds, bruises, and that gash to the back of her head, along with the police's findings at the scene, including the fact that there was no suicide note and no evidence of suicidal thoughts on her computer, and ruled Ellen's manner of death as homicide. Ellen's parents were not notified, but the media was. The Inquirer reports that just before Ellen's father was set to give his daughter's eulogy, a friend told him that they'd seen on the news that Ellen's death was ruled a homicide. That changed his entire speech. He stunned friends and family when up at the podium he said, You may have heard that Ellen killed herself, but her death has just been ruled a homicide. You could have heard a pin drop. Ellen's case was sent over to the homicide unit, and they started digging into the security footage and key fob records at the apartment complex. The only cameras they had were at the front entrance and the lobby. Comparing the footage to the key fob entries at the entrance of the complex, they find that it doesn't look like anyone gained any unauthorized access to the building around the time of Ellen's death, you know, like someone with a key fob holding the door open for someone who doesn't. They look at Sam's key fob records, and according to police, it does record him going into the gym. We don't know exactly what time or when he left, but it is noted as registering at the door of the gym. Detectives reach out to Ellen's psychiatrist, who tells them that Ellen never mentioned having suicidal thoughts. And when asked about there being any abuse at the home, she was adamant that there wasn't any. In fact, the psychiatrist tells them that Ellen never said anything negative about Sam at all. The police did DNA testing on the knife found in Ellen's chest, and it came back as positive for her blood and her blood only. As far as prints, no one knows. And as far as anyone's been able to find, none were ever taken from the knife. The presence or lack of presence and position of any prints on the knife could be extremely pertinent in a case like this, but there are none to reference. The investigation into Ellen's homicide lasted three whole days. Three days for 20 stab wounds in 108 minutes. 20 stab wounds that didn't make a sound. Regardless of whether or not you believe she did this to herself or someone did this to her, making no sound when your body is being punctured 20 times seems impossible. In those three days, the department felt like they'd done a thorough enough investigation to refute the medical examiner's findings and argue once again that Ellen's death was a suicide and that they wanted to look more into any mental illness that she suffered from. They attributed the shallow stab wounds to being hesitation marks commonly seen in suicide stabbings and the bruises to her body from coming from any contact sports that she might have played. But according to the Suicide Prevention Center, suicide by cutting or piercing makes up for only 1.5% of suicides in women. And while they are oftentimes associated with hesitation marks, the hesitation marks are generally followed by one fatal cutting or piercing wound, not multiple. And when someone decides to commit suicide using a sharp object, the most common injuries are going to be to the arms or wrist. But Ellen had none of those. She didn't even have cuts to her hand. If she had been stabbing herself with that much force and that much frequency, the odds of her hand not slipping onto the knife and cutting her palm or fingers are slim to none. 
As far as the bruising, Ellen didn't play any contact sports. She did yoga. So that's a wacky-ass conclusion to come to without clearly establishing any kind of pattern of life analysis. Ellen's parents begged the police to continue investigating their daughter's death, and in a last-ditch effort, one of the homicide detectives says that he's going to hire a neuropathologist to take another look at the stab wounds to the back of Ellen's neck and analyze the damage done to her spinal cord. If it was severed, she wouldn't have been able to continue stabbing herself, and someone else had to have been inflicting those wounds. They wait patiently for answers, and finally, the inquirer reports that the detective comes back and says that while her spinal cord was damaged, it wasn't severed, and that the damage might have actually caused Ellen to go numb and be able to continue stabbing herself. I shit you not that on March 7th, 2011, the medical examiner changed their ruling in the manner of Ellen's death from their original finding of homicide to suicide. Her case was closed. Her parents could not believe it, and frankly, no one else could either, so they sent in FOIA requests for anything and everything they could regarding their daughter's case. The medical examiner's office complied. They sent over the autopsy report and photos, along with the crime scene photos they took and the Emmy's investigative report. The police department sent nothing. Which is strange because this case is closed. It's not uncommon to be denied a FOIA request during an open investigation because police don't want the wrong people knowing who or what they're on to. But this case isn't open, and furthermore, according to them, no crime occurred. So why wouldn't they hand over the case file? Ellen's parents decide to hire their own experts, forensic pathologist Cyril Wecht and forensic scientist Henry Lee, to evaluate everything independently. Wecht was the former Allegheny medical examiner, and before that, he was the Allegheny County coroner. Henry Lee is the founder of the Henry C. Lee Institute for Forensic Science at the University of New Haven, and he's worked on several well-known cases, including JonBenet Ramsey, O.J. Simpson, Lacey Peterson, Michael Peterson, the D.C. sniper, and even reinvestigated JFK's assassination. So these experts weren't just any experts, they were the experts. In Weck's report obtained by the Inquirer, he notes that the stab wounds to the back of her neck are unlikely considering the sheer number of them and the fact that they enter the back of her neck in all different directions, left to right, right to left, vertical and horizontal. There was actually a diagram of these stab wounds and the position the knife would have been in at each entry point, which I'll share in Ellen's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. When comparing the position the knife had to be in while it was in her hand during her neck stab wounds and the position it would have had to have been in in comparison to her chest stab wounds, if we are to believe that she inflicted all of these stab wounds herself, that means that at various points in time, she decided to readjust and flip the knife around to face different directions. How plausible is that conscious decision in the middle of what would have been an agonizing attack on your own body? For most of Ellen's chest wounds, the sharp end of the knife is pointed towards her right arm. But on the back of her neck, most of her stab wounds are made with the sharp end of the knife pointed down towards the floor. It would be nearly impossible to not pause to readjust and reposition the knife to account for all of the directions her stab wounds are in, in congruence with the position the knife was in during the attack. 
Anyways, Wecht continues on in his report talking about how there were no indications whatsoever that Ellen was having suicidal thoughts. Her mother, her friends, and her co-workers saw no indication of it on the day that she died. It would be important to know what Sam had to say about her behavior after she got home from work and before he went to the gym, but so far no one even knows if that statement was ever given. Lastly, Wecht mentions some statistics when it comes to suicide, specifically suicide by stabbing. Generally, a note is left, but obviously not all the time. But in most suicide by stabbing cases, the victim will lift up their clothing before stabbing themselves. Very rarely do you see someone stab themselves through their clothing. But Ellen was stabbed through her t-shirt and a zip-up hoodie. He came to the conclusion that Ellen's death was strongly suspicious of homicide. In Lee's report obtained by the same outlet, he mentions that the location of several of the wounds on the back of her neck would be incredibly difficult to make on her own. But what's really interesting is his analysis of a small cast-off pattern on the kitchen cabinets. Cast-off is blood that gets thrown off of an object during an attack. If she was stabbing herself, you'd assume she'd be pulling the knife out and up to gain momentum to allow her to stab herself again since we know there were 20 of them. But the cast off on the cabinets was at a downward angle, meaning that she would have had to have pulled the knife out of her body at a downward angle and stretch her arm and the knife outward, pointing it away from her body before stabbing herself again. Lee concludes that Ellen was standing when the attack began, seeing as there were drops of blood near the kitchen sink and counter with additional vertical blood drops on the cabinets and floor, and says that the number of wounds and bloodstain patterns observed are consistent with a homicide scene. With these new findings by renowned experts in the field, in February of 2012, the Inquirer reports that Ellen's parents hired civil rights attorney Larry Krasner, who put together a meeting of all parties. Ellen's parents, police, and representatives from the DA's office in an effort to get Ellen's case reopened. But it didn't work. They wouldn't reopen her case. Sometime later, Walter Cohen, the former Pennsylvania State Attorney General from 1989 to 1994, took on Ellen's case pro bono, a.k.a. faux free, and requested over and over again to get access to the detective files, and time and time again the request was denied. But finally, after 1,100 attempts, the police agreed, but on one condition. Okay, like three conditions. That Ellen's parents have to come alone to the station to look at the files there, they can't bring their attorney or any experts, they can't take any photos, and they cannot phone a friend. Essentially, Ellen's parents were thrown into the ocean and expected to swim. They were drowning in documents, reports, and photos that they didn't know how to decipher. They didn't know what they were looking for because they weren't investigators, they weren't medical examiners, and they weren't forensic experts. What felt like a win wound up almost feeling like an insult. They finally had access to everything they ever wanted, but the police knew they wouldn't know what they were looking at, and they didn't want them reaching out to anyone who would. They were at yet another dead end. That is until Tom Brennan came in. Tom 
Tom Brennan worked for the Pennsylvania State Police for 25 years. He also worked for the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit as a profiler, was the director of the Criminal Investigation Division for the Dolphin County DA's office, and has assisted in or supervised over 800 homicides, both nationally and internationally. Again, we have another expert who isn't just any expert. Brennan not only independently investigated this for Ellen's family, but also went on the Dr. Oz show to discuss it nationally with her parents. The Inquirer reports that the thing that stuck out most to Brennan about Ellen's crime scene photos was a line of coagulated blood that ran from the right side of her nose to her left ear. That would mean that at some point her body was laying on its left side long enough for the blood to travel in that direction and coagulate before her body was found. The problem being that Ellen was found with her head and shoulders perched upright against the kitchen cabinets, and everyone at the scene agrees that no one moved her body. This coagulation of blood would have taken minutes, and we know that all of this happened in less than an hour and a half. At what point was she laying on her left side, and who put her back in the upright position? Aside from that, Brennan refuted the lack of defensive wounds, saying that he's seen plenty of homicides without them. The coagulated blood also baffled former Philadelphia prosecutor Guy D'Andrea. So, he started doing a little digging of his own. In 2015, while still at the DA's office, he started looking into her case at the request of an acquaintance who'd heard about it and just couldn't believe it. He got access to the full file, and while flipping through, he wanted to find that forensic neuropathologist report that the detective said he'd done on Ellen's spinal cord. But he couldn't find anything. He asked the police and the ME's office for a copy, and neither could find one. He asked for any kind of information, a bill for the services, anything, but it didn't exist. So they reached out to this forensic neuropathologist themselves to see if maybe she had the report. And she didn't. In fact, according to the Inquirer, this is what she said. I would conclude that I did not see the specimen in question, although there is a remote possibility that it was shown to me. However, I have no recollection of such a case. This neuropathology report was the report that closed the case on the three-day homicide investigation, and now it's starting to look like it might have never actually happened. Certainly, this woman would have remembered examining the spinal cord of a teacher accused of stabbing herself 20 times for free, but alas, she has no recollection of it, and her financial records don't either. Brennan is lit at this point and on a mission to track down how they can figure out whether or not Ellen's spinal cord was truly severed during the attack on her body, and he literally finds it. He finds a piece of Ellen's spinal cord still in storage at the Emmy's office. With the spinal cord in hand, Brennan takes it to Dr. Wayne Ross, a specialist in pathology and neuropathology with 38 years of experience, and the Inquirer reports that he concluded that Ellen's stab wounds penetrated her cranial cavity and severed the cranial nerves and brain. She would have been in excruciating pain and likely would have lost consciousness, making it impossible for her to continue stabbing herself. But someone did, since the final stab wound was to her chest.
He also found evidence that she'd been strangled. According to his report, he found a mark on the front of her neck that was consistent with a fingernail, along with bruising underneath her neck and to the strap muscles on the right side of her neck. Just for reference, I went back and checked her original autopsy report and noted that her hyoid bone was still intact. This doesn't mean she was or wasn't strangled, but in many strangulation cases, you'll see that the hyoid bone is broken, and I know a lot of you crime sleuthers would have had that question. The Inquirer not only reported on Ellen's case in intense detail, they also independently investigated it as well and hired an additional two experts to evaluate her death. They hired Gregory McDonald and Robert Keppel. McDonald noted that you don't tend to see shallow wounds in stabbing homicides, and while it's unusual and unlikely that she would have been able to inflict so many stabbing injuries to herself, it's not impossible. That being said, he believes that the number of stab wounds she sustained and the amount of force needed to inflict them, coupled with the gash on her head, are indicative of homicide, as is the fact, like a previous expert mentioned earlier, that people don't generally stab themselves through their clothes. Keppel, the second expert hired by the Inquirer, was most thrown off by the fact that the knife was found still inside of Ellen's body, that in all of the stabbing suicides he'd seen, he'd never seen anyone leave the knife in their body. At this point, all bets are off and every single inconsistency in detail that makes the hair on the backs of your neck stand up are fair game. Ellen was planning her wedding. She just sent out save the dates. She had an alleged dinner party coming up in a few days for Sam's birthday and was cutting up fruit. She just filled up her car with gas. Does someone planning on committing suicide do all of these things? Do they make all of these plans? That bar latch that had to have been locked from the inside, well, it unlocked from the outside considering both pieces of the mechanism were still installed when Sam claims he kicked in the door, so it's just as possible that it was locked from the outside as well. And that played a major factor in why her death was originally deemed a suicide, but a quick search on YouTube gets you countless videos of how to lock and unlock a bar latch from the outside. And if Ellen was trying to keep someone out, wouldn't she have locked both the deadbolt and the latch? I mean, isn't your first instinct always to lock the actual door? But we'll never know if she did because the only information we have from Sam is that the latch was what was keeping him out. Whether or not he took his keys with him to the gym and used them, we still don't know. How was there so little blood at such a grisly scene? A lot of people have theorized that there might have been a cleanup and that the scene was staged to look like a suicide. However, there was never any luminol testing done on Ellen's scene ever. Not in her kitchen, not in her shower or sink in case someone cleaned up after stabbing her. Nowhere. But who would stab someone 20 times and be like, I bet I can make this look like a suicide? Staging it to look like a home invasion or a robbery would make more sense. I can't imagine that anyone in their right mind would stab her 20 times and be like, shit, let's make this look like a suicide. I can't even imagine how an officer working this scene would be able to come to that conclusion. Knowing now that her spinal cord was in fact severed, is it more likely that there was less blood at the scene than you'd expect due to the fact that one of her earlier stab wounds to the back of the neck killed her and the rest of her wounds were sustained after her heart stopped pumping? If so, that would also somewhat explain the fact that no one heard her scream. 
If she was blitz attacked from behind like Brennan has suggested and those wounds that severed her spinal cord and pierced her brain killed her, she wouldn't have been conscious to scream while someone continued to stab her. The shallow stab wounds honestly cannot be explained well. They are rarely seen in a homicide and are found on both the back of her neck and to the front of her body. A crime scene investigator I consult with from time to time says that every scene should be treated as a crime scene until it is proven otherwise, but Ellen's scene was not. Within just one hour, her scene was cleared, they were out, and nothing was left secured. You'd think a scene where a victim has 20 stab wounds, 10 of which are to the back of her body, would warrant a closed scene until the autopsy reports came back, but that's just not what happened here. Fast forward to 2018. Yes, we are in 2018 now. There is a new DA in town, and it is none other than Larry Krasner, the attorney Ellen's parents hired who put together that meeting of all parties to try and get Ellen's case reopened. They write to him begging to have Ellen's case finally reopened after seven years, but he has to forward the decision to the attorney general's office to avoid any conflict of interest, which there definitely would have been, so he did the right thing. In March of 2019, the Inquirer was wondering what was taking so long. There had still been no answer as to whether or not the case was going to be reopened, so the Inquirer asked the AG's office themselves. And the answer they got blew everyone's mind. A spokesperson for the AG's office tells the Inquirer that due to search history found on Ellen's computer, there is evidence that supports suicide as a manner of death, and their investigation into Ellen's death has been closed. Search history? What search history? Because the original Emmy's report says that there was nothing on her computer that indicated suicide. Had anyone even actually looked at it in that hour at the scene or the three days they spent on her investigation in the homicide unit? Because if they did, they certainly didn't mention it to anyone. The spokesperson said that they don't know if anyone ever looked at her computer, but that they'd gotten it from the FBI's Regional Computer Forensics Laboratory, or RCFL, back in 2018. The Inquirer was able to get a copy of her search history, so I went through it myself. On December 18, 2010, prior to seeing the psychiatrist, Ellen googled suffocation and suicide methods. A little after midnight on January 3rd, she looked at two photos. I only know their photos because the URL ends in JPG, but the photos were of sex fantasy death and a model death. I tried to go to the actual links to see what exactly she was looking at, but the URLs no longer exist. On January 6, around 2 a.m., she started Googling the side effects of Zoloft, but in the middle of it went to an article about the death of presidential aide John Wheeler, whose body was found in a landfill about a week prior to her search. She also looked at an article about a girl who accidentally electrocuted herself in the bathtub while checking Twitter. On January 10th, a little after midnight, she googled quick death, but her results came up with an article on healthy lifestyle, and that is what she pulled up. She also pulled up an Australian article about euthanasia, a dangerous weapon, as well as an article everyone refers to as painless suicide. 
But Ellen didn't Google painless suicide. Though the article does display on Google as a true painless method of committing suicide, when pulled up, it's all about how there is no true painless suicide. It's a religious article talking about how suicide will result in burning in hell for all eternity. The article instead talks about putting your faith in God to be reborn again and then gives resources to contact if you're having suicidal thoughts. With Ellen's internet history in mind, Ellen did not die of suffocation, she did not die a quick death, and she did not die a painless death. In addition to the search history, the representative from the AG's office tells the Inquirer that there were also texts that indicated she was struggling again the day before she died. On January 8th, she texted her mom saying, I'm starting the med. I know you don't understand, but I can't keep living with feeling this way. On the 17th, a week after her internet history just seems to stop, Ellen texted, Klonopin helped. Thank God. Her mom told her she was so happy for her, and Ellen responded, Me too. Oh my God. However, it looks like on the 25th, the day before Ellen was found on her kitchen floor with 20 stab wounds to her body, her mother texted her, you need to see a professional, to which Ellen responded, okay, I'm trying, just scared a bit for everything. At this point, Ellen was seeing a professional, but was there something going on that day that had her mom concerned? We know she was still taking her medicine because it was in her system when she died, but had it stopped working? Ellen's death is one of the most mysterious deaths I have ever researched, and experts from all over have tried coming to a clear understanding of what happened on January 26, 2011, between 4.45 p.m. and 6.33 p.m., and for every piece of evidence that points to homicide, there seems to be something that also points to suicide. Sam kept in touch with Ellen's parents for a little while, but eventually stopped communicating. He has since gotten married, had a child, and started going by a different name. To this day, Ellen's case has not been reopened, and her parents tell the Daily Mail that they have the rest of their lives to fight for this. I want to know what you think happened. Head over to my Instagram at TheHeatherAshley for a discussion. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Ellen's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about the absolute insanity that is this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case and a bonus episode to the Patreon fam a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Mm -hmm.